So I'm glad you're here with us. If, if you're a guest today, let me kind of explain, you know, what we're about a little bit. And you can come to Lakeside 101 later today and we'll talk more about it. But we're a church that believes in God, loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength like he's asked us to do and called us to do. And we also uh, believe in the Bible. We believe that's God's word to us. And so when we come together, you know, for church on Sunday morning, it's like, well, let's look in the Bible and see what God has to say to us. So for the next few minutes, we're just going to do that together and try and find out God's heart. And then how do we align ourselves with God's heart? So if you have your Bible with you, why don't you open it up? If you don't have one with you, we provide some on the chairs near you. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach over and grab one of those. You're welcome to have it, take it home with you, become familiar with it, start reading it. That would be excellent. All right, so we're going to read today in... uh, Beginning in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19, this is part of what is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and in the midst of that sermon, he makes a little statement that I want to use to set up where we're going to head together today. So Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19, here's what Jesus said, "'Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal.'" But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, many of you know that passage, you've heard that passage, those kinds of things. It's really an interesting passage, and often when we come to it, we end up talking about money. And so some of you are like, oh, we're going to talk about money today. It's like, no, we're not. That's what the passage is primarily about, and sometimes for people, shocking to understand how much Jesus actually talked about money and our treasures. And that's really the, the point of what he's talking about here. But there's some, other, there's some other applications of this passage that I want to get to today. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And so wherever you've got yourself invested in this world, your heart's going to go there. There's another application of that that says wherever you put your money, you can steer your heart there. There's power in where you place your treasure because your heart will always follow it. So you want your heart to go a certain direction? Put your treasure in that certain direction. What I found out about 13 years ago or so when my dad passed away was I had investments in heaven that I wasn't really aware of. You know, some investments are on earth. Some investments are in heaven. And when my dad died and he was a believer in Jesus, I believe he went to heaven. When he went, I'm like, I'm more invested in heaven now than I was before. And of course, now with my mom passing, I'm more invested in heaven now. And so my treasure is there. And so my heart is there. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking more and more these days, right, these days, about what, what is heaven like? And, what, and what's my investment like when it's in heaven? And, you know, we, we think through those kinds of thoughts sometimes. Like, well, what does that look like? What's the core of heaven? In our culture, we have all these different popular ideas about what heaven looks like. You know, angels with wings on clouds and harps and things like that. You've seen those images, yeah? We, so we got all these, you know, interesting popular sort of conceptions about heaven. They're not always biblical, but they're out there. And so I just, let's just talk, a, let me show you a little bit of that, about these, and we'll talk a little bit about them, and then we'll um, head in a direction where we're going to. Let's just look at uh, one of the conceptions of heaven on the screen first. You catch a good game. Thank you. It's so beautiful here. For me, well, for me, it's like a dream come true. Can I ask you something? 
Is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa? dreams come true. One view of heaven, baseball park in a cornfield. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that, I'm thinking. So we have these views of heaven. It's like, well, that's sort of what heaven looks like. So, you know, it's, it's a place where dreams come true. Sort of reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. You know, somewhere over the rainbow. I don't, you know, there's all these things we have in our world about heaven. We, have, we tell jokes about heaven, right? They always, they always start with someone shows up at the pearly gates and there's St. Peter. The jokes don't really kind of stay true to biblical theology. I'm just kind of letting you know that in advance. So the pearly gates, there's something about that in the Bible. Peter being at the gate, letting people in or out. That's a little sketchy biblically, but you know, that's how the stories go, right? So there's the story of this guy. He was pretty well-to-do, and he found out that he was going to die. And so he just thought, well, I'm going to, you know, take as much valuable stuff as I can with me. Now, you know that's not how it works, right? You can't take it with you. You should give it to the church, Oh, wait, sorry, I'm sorry, that was, just kidding. Um, no, but you can't take it with you, but in the story, this guy thinks, well, I'm going to take all as much valuable stuff as I can with me, and so he stuffs his pocket full of gold coins, and then sure enough, he dies, and he goes to heaven, and he goes to the pearly gates, there's St. Peter, I know it's not how, but so anyway, he gets there with St. Peter, and he's so excited to get there, he starts pulling out all this gold out of his pocket, he's like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here. He's got all this gold in his hands, and Peter looks at him and he says, well, why did you bring pavement? <laughs> Streets of gold. Yeah, yeah, okay, now see, that's why I don't tell jokes. <laughs> Whatever. 
funnier when it doesn't work. <laughs> so we have these conceptions of heaven, and the idea that Jesus is saying is, invest where you want your heart to go, and figure out what heaven looks like. So there's some interesting statements in the Bible about, about what heaven really looks like. We've been spending the last couple of weekends talking about this, or in this series called The Core. And Sean worked with us a couple of weeks ago on Easter talking about faith. And then last week we talked about hope. And I want to take the next step in that today. And here's where the core comes from. This whole concept of the core comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. It says this. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These three remain. Remain when? Remain after Paul's gone, remain after the Bible's all completed. These three remain when? These three remain forever. Here's the core of life here. Here's the core of life in heaven. And sometimes it's weird to me because I think, why do you need faith in heaven? You get to see Jesus face to face. Why do you need faith? It's because that's how it works. That's how our relationship with God works. And faith will be active in heaven. Hope. I'm like, why do you need hope if you're already in heaven? That's what you were hoping for in the first place. But that's how a relationship with God works. It's based on hope, real hope. And then the love part, Paul says, that's the greatest of these things that last forever. That's the greatest of these things that describe heaven, love. It lasts forever. And, and you know, you get to love and you go, well, you expect that to be in heaven. Of course you do. It's the greatest of these. And I want to spend some time today just talking about that aspect of heaven because when you figure out that faith, hope, and love are the active character traits of heaven, you realize you can get a glimpse of those things right here on earth. You can get a glimpse of heaven from earth today if you live this out. So let's just look through some things and see if we can get a glimpse of heaven together from the Bible this morning. Matthew chapter 22, if you have your Bible out, why don't you turn to that one. Matthew chapter 22, there's an interesting story. A lot of you will know this one. It's pretty familiar if you've been reading the Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked a question, and in response to that question, he tells people this or these are the great commandments. So listen to this, Matthew 22, verse 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, we've talked about these a lot over the last couple of months because we've been talking about loving our neighborhoods. And so we've kind of landed on these things. I want to talk about them from a little bit different perspective today and, and even go back and find out where did these come from. When Jesus said there's two great commandments, he wasn't making these up off the top of his head. and like, hey, you know what? Let's make this up. Two great commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Those commandments came from someplace. In the Bible, they came from the Old Testament. They came from the Hebrew Scriptures. And Jesus said, let me, let me give you a summary of our scriptures. comes down to two great commands, love God and love your neighbor. Now, the love God part came from a prominent passage in the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Jewish people know this as the great Shema. Even today, if you go into a Jewish synagogue, you will hear them talk about, they will say together, the great Shema. Shema means to hear something or to listen. And so here's... The statement where this first commandment, love God with all your heart, 
comes from. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It's the great Shema. It's, it's God saying to the people of Israel, Hey, Israel, listen up. Love God. Now, you come to church, you're like, well, I think, I think God wants us to love him. It's not surprising to come into church and have God say, hey, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why we came, was to be able to express our love to God with everything that we have. And the Jews came to this part. They said, this is the most important part of our scriptures. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's where monotheism came from. Well, the Jews said, we only, we only worship one God, not multitudes of God like some other religions. One God Listen up, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and he wants you to love him with everything you have. And that's not surprising for a religious person. That's not surprising for a person of faith. Of course I should love God with everything I have. That's a very prominent piece of scripture for the Jews. The second part of the great commandment is a much more obscure statement in the Bible. It's not one that the Jews came back to and they read over and over. They don't recite it to one another. In fact, it comes from the second half of a verse in an obscure chapter from the book of Leviticus. How many of you in your daily Bible reading really focus a lot of attention on Leviticus? Not a lot. How many of you even know where Leviticus is? Oh, some, right? See, what happens is we start out reading the Bible like, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to know the Bible. I start out reading the Bible. You come to Genesis chapter 1. It's like, well, creation. Oh, that's pretty cool. Genesis chapter 2, creation all over again. That's pretty good. Goes downhill in chapter 3. Little do not eat the fruit, and we did. That kind of thing, you know. So a little bit downhill in chapter 3. And then you go on. You go, well, Genesis, that's pretty interesting. And then you get to Exodus, and you got the burning bush, and the parting of the waters of the Red Sea, and the Ten Commandments. So that's all pretty cool. So you're reading along, and then you get to Leviticus and you're like, what is he saying? I have no concept of this. And so you skip over to Matthew. <laughs> Which if you're new at this thing, that's in, that's in the whole other testament. Because you're like, I don't get that old part. So in an obscure statement, in the second half of a little verse, halfway through a chapter, there's this statement that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says it's not an obscure it might be an obscure passage, but it's not an obscure command. It's the, it's the second of the big two. And it's a description of what happens in heaven. If you can learn this on earth, you'll be ready for heaven. If you don't learn this on earth, you won't like heaven very much. Because it's all about love your neighbor. So listen to this passage. I want to read, brace yourself, I want to read Leviticus for you. Okay, so we're going to read some stuff. You're going to, there's going to be some stuff. You go, I don't get that part. We'll walk through some of it and see if we can help make sense of some of it. And, uh, and go from there. So Leviticus chapter 19, starting at verse 1, here's what Moses writes. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. 
Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to the Lord. They must be cut off from their people. I told you there'd be some stuff in there. You go, what? Verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't deceive one another. Don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Halfway through the chapter, at the end of what we just read, there's this little statement, love your neighbor as yourself. It's all based on the idea of who God is. All the way through that chapter, he says, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord. Because of who God is and because he is the nature of what heaven is, he says, here's how I want you to live on earth. And it all culminates with the second part of the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's just walk back through and, and understand some of the things that he's talking about. The first thing you find out is he says in verse 2, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So love is rooted in holiness, just like heaven is rooted in holiness. You want to know what heaven's like? It's holy, 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 just like God is. And God comes to us and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Back in January, we did a whole series called Holy, 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 three different spellings of the word holy, three different concepts, and we, under, we began to understand this, the idea of holiness comes together with the idea of wholeness, and you will never be whole without being holy. So what, he's, what he ends up saying in this passage, when he starts off with holiness and he ends up with love, is he says this, holy people love, or Whole people love. Now, some of us will look at that and we go, oh, um, loophole. You know, I, I, I'm not all that holy. You know, and the Bible says so. It's like all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm not all that holy, so I don't really have to love the people that I don't want to. See how we twist scripture? Or is this just me putting this in your head? Well, I'm not all that holy, so I don't have to love, but let's turn that thing around and put a corollary to it and say it this way. People who love become holy. You ever look at your life and you go, duh, I'm just not as holy as I want to be. I want to honor God. I want to do what God wants. I want to be his person in this world. I want to be holy. And you find out I'm just not that holy. In, in practical terms, I know, the, I know the sacrifice of Christ on the cross makes us holy before God's eyes. 
but from a practical perspective, I'm just not all that holy. You want to become more holy? People who love become holy. People who love become whole. That's how he starts. He says, I want you to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's going to help us when it comes down to the idea of loving our neighbor. What else is there? How do we love our neighbor? How do we do this whole thing? Well, the next thing he says in verse 3 is, each of you must respect your mother and father. Why does he say that? What does that have to do with loving our neighbor? I think it's this. Your, your, your mother and your father are the first set of relationships you enter into in this world. He says, here, right off the bat, here's what I want you to do. I want you to respect, I want you to honor your mother and your father. Why? Because when you get that relationship right, all your other relationships work better. If you understand how to respect your mother and father, loving your neighbor is never quite as hard. It's the beginning. It's the foundation of all our relationships. Be holy, God says, because I am holy. And then respect your mother and father. Both of those will lead you in the process of understanding how to love your neighbor as you love, ourself, as you love yourself. And in a way, that prepares us for heaven. Because that's the nature of heaven. Now, I'm going to skip over that whole part about sacrifice. Some of you are like, come on, tell us about that. It's like, no, because we don't do sacrifices anymore because of the sacrifice of Christ. So let me jump down to verse 9 and talk about the next few things that come. Beginning in verse 9, there's a string of negative commands. Don't, 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 don't. It's all these commands that he gives. A bunch of don't say me. He's going, don't reap to the edge of your field. Don't pick up the grapes that have fallen. Don't steal, don't lie, don't deceive, don't swear falsely, don't defraud, don't, don't rob your neighbor, don't withhold wages from a day laborer overnight, don't curse the deaf or trip the, the blind. I, I have, when, I, when I read those last two, I, I think about children, I think about little boys, how tempting that is to put a stumbling block in front of the blind, you know, it's like, I, I know it's evil, but I'm sorry, I was a boy once. He says, don't do all these things, what's the point of all this don'tness? Here in this list, I believe God is trying to teach us what it means to love our neighbor. And the quickest route to understanding sometimes comes through a negative command. Instinctively, you know this with your children. Those of you who are raising children now and those of you who have already raised children, don't, don't you come to the place sometimes where you just give them quick negative commands? Don't go in the street! You're giving them all these don'ts. Don't pull your sister's hair. Don't hit your brother. Don't steal the cookie. Don't, don't, don't. Which is really odd because experts say children never hear the first word you say. So all they hear is go on the street, hit your brother, pull your sister's hair. <laughs> Their behavior is your fault. No, I'm just kidding about that part. So, but you, we, give these, we give these negative commands. Why? Because it's the clearest path to understanding sometimes. I tell my child, don't run in the street. What I really want for them is I, I want to sit down at the table with them and have a nice long conversation and say, honey, what I really want in this world for you is I want you to thrive and I want you to live long and prosper and I want you to have such a long life that you're able to raise up grandchildren that I'll be able to enjoy. But it just works a whole lot better when you say, don't run in the street. 
And so here God lays out this whole string of negative commands for us to be able to say, here's here's what I don't want you to do. And when you grasp what I don't want you to do, then you'll better understand what I want you to do. I want you to love your neighbor. And so he gives this whole string of commands. Don't reap to the edges of your field. Why not? Don't pick up the grapes that have fallen. Why not? They're my grapes. Yeah, but he says, but I want you to leave those for the poor and for the alien among you. I want you to bless those who are your neighbors. I want you to bless them even if they're poor. I want you to bless them even if they don't belong in your country. I want you to bless them. I want you to leave that for them because you're going to love your neighbor even if your neighbor is different from you. Don't lie. Why not? Because your neighbor needs to be able to trust you. If you're going to love your neighbor, he must be able, she must be able to trust you. Don't steal. Again, that's a trust issue. It also says, I respect what you've already worked hard to earn, so I won't steal it because I love my neighbor. Don't curse the deaf. Don't trip the blind. Why not? Because there's someone who has, there's, they are, that person is someone who has a handicap or a disablement or you know, some kind of challenge in their life that you don't have in your life. You want to love your neighbor? Don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Don't curse the deaf. Why? Because you're here to love your neighbor, whoever that neighbor is. If you take all these negative commands and you were to translate them into a positive statement, it would say something like this. God says to us, love your neighbor by telling the truth, judging fairly, squashing gossip, and forgiving offenses. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor. And he says, that's the practice of heaven. That's what heaven looks like. It's the core of the Christian life. And now these three remain. Faith and hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. That's the core. And then he comes to this last little statement that Jesus says is is part two of the great commandment. Not only love God, with everything you have, but also love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it gets a little tricky there because I have to love them as I love myself. That calls for sacrifice. See, in our, in our picture of heaven sometimes, in our picture of love sometimes, we get off track from what the Bible teaches, not necessarily in bad ways, but not necessarily in, in or, you know, following what the biblical teaching would be. In our world, love is mostly romantic. It's idealistic. It's like, oh, that would be a beautiful thing. Oh, that would be a wonderful relationship. And it's mostly romantic. But in the Bible, the core of love is sacrifice. And when he says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, it's about sacrifice. When Jesus ups the ante in the New Testament, he says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. What is that? That's by sacrifice. He says to husbands, I want you to love your wife like I have loved you. What is that? That's by sacrifice. But even if you just stop at the place where he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, what is that? It's by sacrifice. We sacrifice for ourselves all the time, don't we? I mean, sometimes we sacrifice discipline for pleasure for ourselves. Sometimes we sacrifice pleasure for discipline for ourselves. Whatever we do, we go, well, that's going to be to my advantage. That's going to be to my gain. 
Sometimes I sacrifice ice cream for the sake of going to the gym. I know it's weird, it's funny, but I do that sometimes because I have this desire to live a long life. Sometimes I sacrifice the gym for ice cream because I just can't stand the tension any longer. I sacrifice for me. I do this for me. And Jesus says, I want you to do that for your neighbor. I want you to learn to make sacrifices for your neighbor because the core of love is sacrifice. The core of heaven is sacrifice. When you realize that the author of heaven, that the owner of heaven left that place to come to this place to die on a cross for our sake, not for his sake, but for our sake, then you find out that's what love looks like. Love your neighbor as yourself, and all of a sudden you have a glimpse of heaven. Because that's what heaven looks like. Jesus, I pray for us today on this. You have been very clear, Lord, about what you want for us. You've been very clear about what you want from us. You want, you want love for us. It's why you came to our world. It's why you sacrificed yourself for us. But then you want love from us to others. And I believe you want to express your love to our neighbors through us. Sometimes our neighbors, the only sacrifice they'll ever understand from you is if we're the ones who make it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would amazingly, powerfully open our eyes to ways in which we can sacrifice for our neighbor, whether that neighbor's next door or across the street or behind the back fence or across the row at work or in the teacher's lounge at work or on the playground or wherever that neighbor might be. Lord, may we be clear on what it looks like to love our neighbor by sacrificing for them. And would you change this world through us, Lord? Would you change our lives when we live this way? Would you change our neighbor's lives when we live this way? And would you be honored by the activity we engage in to love our neighbor as ourself because we love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, thank you for these things. We honor you together today, Lord Jesus. Amen.